0: Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. I'm standing atop Bunker Hill, surrounded by the Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Music Center, the Colburn School of Performing Arts, and the Museum of Contemporary Art, where on September 25th we recorded the program you'll hear tonight on Socalo Radio. You've probably been here to scope out Frank Gehry's magnificent concert hall design or to listen to the soaring operas at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. But if you've seen what I am seeing, you might think that this part of town lacks the kind of vitality and sense of community that we often attribute the centers of other global cities. Tonight, we'll be talking about a $2 billion improvement plan, the Grand Avenue Project, that seeks to change that. The stated goal of the project is to transform the civic and cultural district of downtown Los Angeles into a vibrant city center. This remarkably ambitious plan has been hailed as a key to the urban rejuvenation of downtown Los Angeles. Combining architecture, streetscape, and park planning elements with huge amounts of new retail and residential space, the project's sheer reach recalls much earlier eras of urban planning. But how will the project's multiple and varied goals be reached? How will Grand Avenue balance public and private interests, funds, and needs? Will it live up to the hype? Socalo, along with the USC Huntington Institute on California and the West, assembled a distinguished panel at the Museum of Contemporary Art to answer these questions. Los Angeles Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne, developer Bill Whitty, president of the Related Companies of California, Dana Cuff, professor of urban planning at UCLA, and L.A. City Council member Jan Perry joined us for a spirited discussion. Here to start us off is Dana Cuff.
1: The title of the symposium, the panel tonight, is Will Grand Avenue Live Up to the Hype? The remarkably ambitious Grand Avenue project has been hailed as the key to urban rejuvenation in all of downtown and the rest of Los Angeles with architecture, streetscapes, parks, commercial, housing, you name it, it's going to be rolled into the Grand Avenue project. We've seen this before, of course, in Los Angeles, right here on Bunker Hill, in fact. But just about Grand Avenue, it's been likened by Eli Brode, now probably to his deep regret, to the Champs-Élysées. It's been railed against by some, who will remain nameless, as the New Yorkification of Los Angeles, it's been challenged by others who might remain nameless but our supervisors as quote <laughs> the desire for an iconic skyline that's just for aesthetics but perhaps most miraculously it's garnered the support of our past three mayors both the la city council and the la county board of supervisors that has to be that's a asti- political that's landmark astonishing. That's right astonishing. that really is astonishing. yes astounding. The questions that we have before us tonight are very open-ended ones. What is it? Who's it for? How far along is it? And what obstacles remain? And will it work? So let me open with a little reminder about what's happened in Bunker Hill. This is in part for Bill Deverell, our local historian. It's always good to look back just a little ways to think about what we're looking at today. Any of us who've lived here for several decades have watched Bunker Hill transform starting in the early part of the century when it was covered with Victorian homes, once they deteriorated, divided into ramshackle apartments, eventually labeled a slum, and prepared for demolition. As early as 1930, there were plans in the works to remake Bunker Hill. And the first idea that I've seen in uh, documented form was something called the Babcock Report in 1951, which really proposed to put high-rise towers here, remarkably reminiscent of the scheme we're going to be talking about tonight. That was at a density four times uh, Park La Brea, just to give you a sense of what was imagined possible here on Bunker Hill, for a variety of reasons. We got instead these, uh, the commercial buildings that we all walked through here tonight, mostly built in the 70s and 80s. Downtown was promised a lot in that redevelopment effort, but it was created without any of the vibrancy people now are seeking in Grand Avenue. I think that was really when urban blight seemed like a bigger problem than urban boredom. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The greatest hope now is that Grand Avenue will deliver on that promise to bring us away from the urban monotony and some kind of uh, vibrancy that we have long thought missing here in Los Angeles. Its supporters believe that this great urban garden will become a place where people of all stripes, our great diversity in this city, will be able to stroll, shop, eat, and live all together its detractors argue it's going to turn these four public parcels of land into a predictable version of a shopping mall. And to those cultural critics who say, like I sometimes might, that contemporary leisure is shopping, we still would say <laughs> we don't need another grove or a century city plaza or a city walk. So I think what I'd like to start with is asking our fellow panelists. What convinces you that we're going to get the former and not the latter? What evidence do you look for in the scheme to say this is definitely going to bring the vibrancy we want and not turn us into a rather predictable shopping experience?
2: Please, Um, I'll tell you why I grew to be more confident that it wouldn't turn out to be the same old linear mall with a singing fountain in the middle because of the extensive community outreach that the developer did, not just in the immediate area, but out to the San Fernando Valley, down into South Los Angeles, over into East Los Angeles, and they engaged people about their their memories of downtown, their their fantasies about downtown, what they wanted to see, and a lot of people, especially seniors... Talked about how when they were kids and their parents took them to downtown and they'd get dressed up and go to the fancy stores and see people on the street, go to Clifton's for lunch, and there was something cultural down here to do, go to the movies in these beautiful theaters or or to go, you know, to hear music somewhere. And they were yearning, people expressed their yearning for something different. They very much appeared to take this to heart, and we had a lot of charrettes out in the middle of the mall, where people came and voted on what they liked and put dots where, you know, where they like uh, having music, do they want water, do they want more trees, do they want places to sit, uh, they want Wi-Fi, all those things. And so they did something that I hadn't seen before in a project of this magnitude where they actually spent an enormous amount of time listening to people and documenting what they said. Christopher, Bill, would you like to?
3: It would be presumptuous for me to say at this juncture when we haven't although almost, started construction, that it will definitely achieve all those lofty goals. But here's a couple of things I think that have happened or that are about the project that make it at least different from other efforts. You start with Bunker Hill, for example. Virtually everything on Bunker Hill in the post-redevelopment era has been building by building, some arguably more successful than others, but all building by building. They weren't about the district or really even the public. They were about a building. When Jan and others formed the joint powers authority between the city and county for Grand Avenue, a conscious decision was made. And she could tell you more, but it wasn't necessarily a slam dunk to get this consensus that the city and the county have to put all of their vacant parking lots together and really address it as a district. So what We've been talking about, and Christopher has commented on today, is about phase one, but there are two other phases. And the agreement and the plans, in general at least, deal with all three phases. We have a very specific schedule of performance, which they will enforce to ensure that ultimately that, that all happens. Second thing is different has been the focus on public space. I think people, when we went out to the community, as Jan said, people understood okay, the buildings are gonna be the buildings and the people who get to live there and there is a mix of incomes that will be those people, but what for the broader public to to really get it active, how do you do that? And we've spent a lot, a huge amount of time, not only on the redevelopment of the county mall into what will be a civic park and we're well underway in a schematic design process for that right now, but also on the development site itself and the public spaces and how they engage the public the use of outdoor space. A challenge given to us from the get-go by Jan and others were not only this should be a higher level of design quality, but this should be something that is uniquely LA. You should not, as is often the case now, be able to just go to any city and see some replica of it. So those, I think, are the building blocks, the fact that it's mixed income, the fact there's a lot of public space, the fact that it deals with the district and not just one building that I think give it a chance to achieve that. I guess my role is to
4: be the contrarian on some of these issues, which I'm happy to do. I think um, those of you who've read my coverage of the the design for the first phase know that I, I do think that it's shown some real improvement in the last um, couple iterations. Um, I do think, though, that the, remember there's the Civic Park that goes along with it, and I think even the most generous reading of the design so far would say that the, the park design has really lagged behind the commercial portion, and I think maybe this is something Bill can speak to, but there was a worry going into the project that the commercial portion would really be driving this architecturally and even urbanistically, and because there's not the same kind of bottom line concerns on the park that that in terms of design wouldn't get the same kind of attention and i think the there's some been some certainly some lagging in terms of the development of that design i think what that means is in in sort of classic la fashion that we really have to examine the retail portion at ground level the plaza the outdoor areas of the commercial portion as a kind of public space and and uh and expect that it will reach a certain kind of bar that we might not expect of, of another purely commercial project. A, because this is you know, city and county land, and, and B, because the park is, is lagging, at least to a certain extent. So I'm encouraged by some of the ways that the design has developed, particularly at the ground level, but I think that means that the you know, we really have to treat that as a public space in the same way, in terms of judging the project in the same way that we do the park itself.
2: Councilwoman Perry. The public may not be aware of this one fact. Uh, when we set up the Joint Powers Authority and Supervisor Molina is the uh, chair of the authority, one thing she made absolutely certain is that nothing proceeds until the park is built. And uh, this project is front-loaded in a way that the park absolutely has to be built first. The park has to be built Even if the rest of it never gets built, the park has to be built. She has a lot more experience than I do as an elected official, but, you know, a lot of times you'll start a project, the developer comes along and, you know, something unfortunate happens, and then the one amenity that would have been catalytic in terms of encompassing uh, the greatest number of people from all walks of life could have been lost, and we all recognized that that was always a risk. That's why we structured the agreement between the county city CRA and the developer so that the park gets done no matter what and actually and I think this is public record I mean we have their money already right. so for right. the park so right. um, that, that, that's going that, that will happen no matter what so the commercial portion is not driving this the design it's really the park the park also poses some very interesting engineering issues right. county people I don't know if there is. And here they talk constantly about the ramps for going in and out of the garage. And it is a major, as silly as that might sound to those of us who don't work there, it's a major engineering issue as well as, you know, putting water features and load-bearing questions over a parking structure, subterranean parking, and Bill can speak on that better than I can. But it's an interesting issue, but we will get our park no matter what.
1: Bill, it might be useful, uh, because I suspect most people don't know what's part of Phase 1, which I think is beginning in the next six months. Is that the idea?
3: We will start demolition of the parking structure that is on the the site of Phase 1, right opposite Disney Hall, by December 1st. That will begin what will be about a 42- to 44-month construction schedule for what will include two towers— about a 48-story tower with about 250 condos above a 275-room Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which is committed. The second tower will be about 150 condos above about 100 low-income rental units. That's sort of the two big pieces. Then about 250,000 square feet on various levels because of the topography of the site of various commercial retail uses, including 40 to 50,000 square foot grocery, 15 to 20,000 square foot bookstore, 35,000 square foot Equinox Health Club, a 20,000 square foot catering events facility, a nightclub, six or seven restaurants at various price points, virtually all of which will have outdoor as well as indoor space feeding onto the plaza, a 1,400 car parking garage underneath all of this, very complicated. We indeed spent more time for a while on the plans for that than for the park because if we didn't figure that out, there'd be no deal at all and no park. But as Jan points out, we cannot get a certificate of occupancy for the phase until that park is open, and they have our money. So our hearts, your hearts and minds tend to follow once uh, you have the money. I think I'm,
1: part of this discussion about the park is really related to our communal questions about what the public sphere is anymore. I mean, what is it that we expect out of our public spaces? The civic center, you know, a kind of public space that we might want to see happening in our downtown. you want to talk about that? um, Just a
4: couple of things, really briefly on the park. I think that I think all those things you say, Councilwoman, are true. And I think the, the question is. If the you know the roughly fifty million dollars that's been earmarked for the park, if a good chunk of that is going to go to ramps and grading, what's going to be left to turn it into a park that's significantly different and significantly less hidden than than the one that's yeah. there now? And I think I just think that's a question that remains to be answered. Yeah, I but
2: hope one day we can tear those buildings down. Yeah, the county is yeah. uh-huh. interested and willing to do that.
4: And I think Dana, to your you know to your question, I think what makes this a really fascinating moment in Los Angeles is that. In the larger world of kind of urban planning, there's a critique that's been going on for a couple of decades about the end of public space, the end of public design, and a kind of very cynical judgment about how public space is made or, or, or probably more to the point, not made anymore. And so, following on the heels of that, Los Angeles now, at that moment, sort of in, in the history of urban design, finds itself really becoming a public city in a certain way, in a way that it hadn't, particularly downtown, where it had been such a private city before, and now we have um, a much different constituency, particularly downtown for open space that had never been there before. So we're, we're not only trying to carve out public space, we're really trying to reverse you know, several decades of thinking about those issues in a much different way. So, and all those things you said about the I think the big question in terms of this project living up to the hype i don 't know if it will architecturally or urbanistically, but as a subject matter for me i know I know that it will certainly i mean there there are too few opportunities in this city, I think, or there have been too few to have this kind of conversation about you know defining the city, especially downtown and and uh, this is certainly a, a good chance to do that, and also the history is something that people. You know, the, the neighborhood that was here in those Victorians was walkable. It was, you know, it had people walk downtown to what we now call the historic core from those, you know, from those buildings. And were really, and then they became like so much of downtown surface parking lots. And now we're trying to sort of reverse engineer all of that. And that's something that's going on all over L.A., but those issues are really concentrated, I think, in this project.
1: Well, there's a general skepticism, I think, and that's both scholarly and public, about whether there is a downtown in Los Angeles, and Grand Avenue has been the site where that debate has really raged for 30 years.
2: I think that a. Anytime you have a project of this magnitude, it raged when we uh, uh, Staples mm. started. Uh-huh. It raged a little bit more on mm-hmm. LA Live. I, I think it's because you know traditionally there's no center. Mm-hmm. I think downtown is a. Collection of very interesting, organically grown neighborhoods that have uh, arisen. Some based on economy, some based on changing the way buildings are used, uh, some on demand. I think it depends on where you go. I think about Little Tokyo, and that this is a historic cultural neighborhood with a, a, a population that is spread out all over the country. But every year, I think it was the 67th Nisei Week Festival, and to see people come here out of love and this deep love of the culture and the connection and the emotional Hmm. connection to me is kind of what downtown, what makes downtown different. That people actually do want to get out in the streets. They do want to connect with people. It's a different experience. It's almost like we're craving the connections that maybe some of us had if we grew up in other parts of the country that were urban and you you know, you had your neighborhood, and yet we want that broader experience of culture and architecture, and yet, you know, that history is kind of what binds us all.
3: I would just like to reinforce what, what Jan said, you know, when you, the original question, can it live up to the hype? Of course it can't. But one of the reasons is it's too much of a single focus on this as if nothing else is happening downtown. We're on our second project in Little Tokyo. Yeah. Go to Little Tokyo any weekend, or for that matter, any weeknight. It's a pretty vibrant place, and it's just the merging of older culture with newer. Go to the Arts District. Go to the Historic core now. I mean, all of these things are happening organically. L.A. Live and Grand Avenue are the kind of 900-pound gorillas that are, that are not happening purely organically. That is true, and there's reasons for that. They're about something else. But all of this is of a piece. This is not happening in a vacuum in any way. And the only thing I regret is that we get a little too much of the, it's all about Grand Avenue. Well, it really isn't all about Grand Avenue. And then by the same token, this isn't a perfect palette. As Jan said, we're trying to do the best we can with an 11 and a half acre public space that is bookended by two buildings that no longer should be there and eventually won't because they're damaged by the earthquake. Many have pointed out from a design point of view that the real axis of the public space might just as easily be north-south from the Mm -hmm. cathedral down Grand Avenue as east-west from City Hall to to, uh, Grand Avenue, but it's hard to do that now. What you will see hasn't been done yet. I have the benefit of knowing what we're doing internally, as Jan does to some degree, when when there is a park plan, which will be vetted by the public maybe by the end of the year, we're going to think beyond the box, beyond the 50 million. I'll be so bold as to say I have reason to believe that we'll be able to double the 50 million, or close to it perhaps by the time we start the park. So to your question, we have to be mindful of what we have, but we're not stopping there. We're thinking outside the box, and along the way, you're going to start seeing more and more connectivity to those other places that maybe aren't getting the same attention outwardly that this is.
1: I think that connectivity is really critical, especially in light of what you're saying about the other developments and changes that are happening downtown. And from my own perspective, the new attention to downtown isn't just revisiting of our constant desire for something that we're missing, there the, not being any there there in Gertrude Stein's talk, but that really we've expanded. A, you know, when you look at the land use patterns in Los Angeles, there isn't a way to keep going out the way we have been in the past, and so this new attention and new housing that's coming downtown is something that's going to. Continue for the next few decades, and we're going to be faced with the problems of traffic and figuring out how to design that better and how to make connections in this sense in a way that really make the new pressures on downtown make it still a livable place. In Frank Gehry's first proposal for Grand Avenue, it was called the Downtown Green, and it was intended to use landscape, really, as a connective tissue throughout that whole area. In a way, I think It's like what we see in the genius of Frank's work at Disney Concert Hall. That little garden that surrounds it is as nice as the concert hall itself. And that sense of a kind of intimate garden for our city is very uniquely Los Angeles, I think. And it's bringing that kind of connective garden-like tissue to this project that I think will really give it a kind of local identity and livability that we could use.
2: Well, I think in the sense of uh, Disney Hall and the Garden there, it's an intimate experience where I think this contrasts with what what we may end up with, which is space that is arguably much more open at the street level at this point. You know, if we had all the money in the world, I think we'd like to take down the courthouse and the county building. Uh-huh. And if we really had a lot of money, eventually just go over the freeway and make that green too and then go into the, uh, yeah. you know, back of the, the Eli and Edie Broad high school but we don't have that kind of money yet so, but what's amazing is to think about the potential for that and, and that we were flexible enough to be able to pursue the park even though the buildings are still there with the thought in mind that someday they actually may come down and that we can still go back and make those adjustments I, re- I remember one year we have our civic program for Mexican Independence Day, El Grito and we did it on the Spring Street steps and um, I think the uh, singer that year was uh, Pepe Aguilar, and uh, he brought, there were 22,000 people down there from the Spring Street steps all the way back to the steps of the Music Center. It was nighttime, it was beautiful, it was absolutely beautifully lit, and to look, standing on the steps, and then look west and see all these people there at night downtown in this space was was actually really uh it's something i'll never forget Mm. again it's just these public spaces and how people react to them i don't think we've even scratched the surface yet
0: Claudia Vasquez on Bunker Hill, a stone's throw from the Museum of Contemporary Art, where in conjunction with the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West, Socalo assembled a panel to discuss the pros and cons of the Grand Avenue Project. L.A. Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne, developer Bill Whitty, president of the related companies of California, Dana Cuff, professor of urban planning at UCLA, and L.A. City Council member Jan Perry. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Next week on Socalo Radio, we present An Evening with Michael Govan, an event recorded this past Tuesday at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series. 43-year-old Michael Govin recently completed his first year as director of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. He visits Socalo to chat about his meteoric rise through the art world, his dreams of turning L.A. into the new cultural capital of the U.S., and the things this city must do to help us get there. Govin will be interviewed by Ann Philbin of the Hammer Museum. That's next time on Socalo Radio, 9 p.m. Sundays on 89.3 KPCC. More information is at our website, SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to our panel on the Grand Avenue Project. Don't go away. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio.
3: Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide.
0: 89.3 KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Here again is our panel discussing the pros and cons of the Grand Avenue Project. L.A. Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne, developer Bill Whitty, president of the Related Companies of California, Dana Cuff, professor of urban planning at UCLA, and L.A. City Council member Jan Perry.
4: I think, um, Bill, in terms of the, the focus that's been on this project, I mean, I, I think it's, it's not unlike the focus that, at least until Rupert Murdoch bought, bought the Wall Street Journal, was on the Los Angeles Times, we were really the kind of the poster boy for... A lot of issues about the future of newspapers and the future of the media, and I think this project raises the same range of questions. It becomes a way to talk about Los Angeles. It becomes a way to talk about downtown, about vertical living, about the kind of, the the fact that the only, that the scale of these projects is getting so gigantic. The only way that you can really make a project like this happen is to have this kind of scale and this kind of capital, and it's a a test also for, you know, it's ten years almost exactly since Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao opened, and that was really the beginning of uh, using you know well known architects for for cultural projects but the the really fascinating projects now are developers trying to use the same kind of thing and trying to brand their projects with designers and that raises a whole host of questions that really aren 't there for a cultural project and so it becomes a way to talk about that too so I think you know there 'll be another project that that comes along and I think when l a live um, opens later this year that'll you know that will become Part of the uh, at least the first part of LA Live opens that will be you know take some of the the focus off. But
1: well, the comparison or the thinking back to Bill is an interesting issue because I think that goes directly to your point, Bill, to say you can't do this by thinking about a building. It has to be thought of as a kind of district, and we just don't have experience with that in Los Angeles. If you look back to our big projects of Chavez Ravine or the ones that interest me, the big public housing projects that happened, they were all really thought about as closed worlds into themselves. They didn't really connect to their neighborhoods. And so if the Staples Center is able to do that, which isn't entirely clear, maybe it would be an example. But I think Grand Avenue really has the burden of trying to demonstrate this new kind of urban project that's a public-private joint venture that really works for the public as well as for its occupants.
3: Let me comment on that in two ways. One, something that struck us throughout the project, and L.A. is still in transition in figuring out how to deal with this question. That's traffic and congestion. Let me give you an example. We have to do an environmental impact report. So we have to, on the one hand, gauge how much traffic, how you're going to accommodate it, where it's going to be parked. We did that. It was approved. It was not challenged. And yet, We go before the planning commission, and people are saying, why do you have so much parking? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Uh, How about we're not going to have an approved EIR if we don't? So I'm not being flip about it, but L.A. hasn't figured out yet what it really wants to be in these places. In other words, I say to, I can't say this in public because I'll get my head handed to say me, but anyway. I guess this is public, but yeah, whatever.
2: You already did it. I already did it. Yeah. But
3: for example, people say, well I, I say give me an example to the public of places that you like that are vibrant. Well places in New York or Barcelona and all that pretty congested, aren't they? Oh yeah they're really congested. Well that's what vibrancy does. A lot of people in one place. So you know I mean, you think remember, about it. Remember
2: when we went to the editorial board in the LA Times and we were almost done with the interview and you had one final thought that you expressed? I remember when you said it and I went, oh no, oh no, oh my God, no, he He's didn't say, say that. that. You said something like, congestion is yeah, exciting yeah, yeah, or something yeah, 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 like yeah. that. It's like, oh.
3: <laughs> so, so, you know, oh I gosh. think, I th- personally what I think is going to happen is LA Live is going to open in its own different way. It's, okay. it's going to be very successful. There are going to be tons and tons of people and people are going to complain about the congestion all the time. But my own opinion is, on balance, people are going to be happy that it happened. They're going to feel better about the city that it has this place, even as the complaints continue. You know, that's, we were in Barcelona for the first time with my family last summer. I said, what a wonderful place, and the design, and the, well, it's about the pedestrian, if you want that, then you plan for the pedestrian. This city hasn't gotten there yet. And the biggest problem for which we have no immediate answer is we don't have the transit system. Mm-hmm. So that remains the kind of unspoken gorilla in the room that you know we don't yet have the answer for.
1: Well, I find that really interesting. When you read comments about Grand Avenue, especially when people talk about the $66 million tax rebate. It generally sparks everyone's uh, favorite pet project you know well we really should spend it on the libraries we really need to have it on public transit and all of a sudden each precious dollar that we have is sucked out of this project to go to some other pressing need that can't be denied but it's also an impossible kind of comparison to well s-
2: i think that the way uh, the media portrays projects like this even and it happened with staples too it's not a tax rebate basically did I say rebate? Well, whatever. Okay. You know. That it's basically capturing the revenue that is generated from this project back on site with an opportunity for the city to share some of it. So we'll actually make money that we hadn't, would not have made otherwise. So we share. We did that on Staples. We're actually coming out way ahead now. Uh-huh. It's helped us on our, our, our own convention center to improve its own no. profitability, but this is not necessarily an unusual way to do something At this it's
1: magnitude. It's exactly the same discussion yeah. that happened about yeah. Chavez Ravine, too, yeah. and 10 years later, it was making money for the city. It's I, I understand your point. Well,
3: yeah. you, you know, it raises an interesting question because public-private projects like this, particularly that have a commercial interest where there's public money involved, will always be subject to certain criticism. What is not as well documented, although maybe of late it has been, is that Grand Avenue and LA Live, to a lesser degree, represent a new public-private model where the success of the public is, or that the public access to it is, is measured not just by things like open space, but by so-called public or community benefits.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: People probably know by now, maybe they don't, but 20% of the housing in Grand Avenue on site is low income. By that I mean Rental units for people making basically twenty-two to 32000 a year. I don't know. Maybe that's not low to some people. I think it's pretty low, pretty affordable. Every job in the project has to pay a living wage. There is no project in the city of L.A. that has anything like that. Not anyone. Anything close to that. Now, I think subsequently you're going to start to see that. And there's a whole host of things like that. A, a program we work very closely with Jan on that is soon to start up on training for local hiring, both throughout construction and all the permanent jobs, a first-source hiring agreement, which is in the covenants. It's not something that's, if come, you have to do it. It's baked into the financing documents. So there is another side that has nothing to do with design, and there's a lot of people in this city, especially given the disparity in incomes in the city, who frankly don't care about what it looks like. They want to know... How do I, as a member of the public, benefit as a user of the project? It's a whole different model that's beginning to become the norm, really, Mm -hmm. now. And I can tell you it's not easy. So you're juggling a lot of different priorities, and one's one's definition of the public is another Is somebody else's different definition.
1: I think that's a really promising development, especially here in Los Angeles, where private development has always dominated the way our city grew and changed. So that seems really like a wonderful step forward and more complicated notion of public than we've had.
3: Dan, if I could interrupt. I have yet to have a developer call me up and say, gee... If I could get a subsidy for my hotel, I'd be happy to do all those things. I haven't had a call yet.
1: Before we leave our panel conversation and open it up for questions, I do want to switch to the architecture for a minute and talk about how the design of the project is shaping up. We've talked a little bit about the park design, but... I guess to open that conversation, some people would say that it's a blessing that Frank Gehry's involved because he's a longtime Angelina. We know he's an incredible designer. We enjoy the fruits of his work right here in downtown already. And he's committed to uh, making the project be an important work for him. Are, is he getting the chance to do his best work? I guess that would be one question we would ask.
4: Just quickly, everybody knows that the relationship between Frank Gehry and the, and the, and related has not been always the easiest. But as I've written and others have pointed out, and I think as Bill has said publicly, a lot of Frank's projects have really benefited from. Sometimes it's 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 Frank himself driving a kind of brinksmanship and and benefiting from that. Sometimes it's benefiting from the kind of constraints or uncertainty or delays. I think um, I think Disney Hall is a great example of that. A building that. Whose design really really benefited from some of those delays and a chance to to take a few more cracks at it. So I think it depends how you define his best work. I think I think some of these complications actually have driven the project forward in some interesting ways. I do think the issue of connectivity is one that we need to continue to watch. I think the and perhaps Bill can speak to this issue especially the sense of openness on the, um, the part of the project not facing Disney Hall along Grand, but on the on the on the so-called backside, you know, in the direction of Broadway, where there's really already an incredibly vibrant, vibrant pedestrian part of the city. And I, I think that the project could still take a lot of strides in opening itself up more. It certainly sends a message that's more open than, you know, Cal Plaza or those buildings that were put up along, you know, on the top of Bunker Hill, which are completely closed off in terms of their attitude toward that other part of uh, downtown. But I think this project could still still open up more in that direction. But I'm sure Bill has some things to say about that.
3: I like to say, only partly in jest, that and I've said it to Frank numerous times. I've said, well, we tried to control him and we failed. (laughs) Um, And, you know, actually Christopher, I have to hand it to him. I thought he had the best analysis of it in his newspaper article, where he sort of just commented on it, where he said, yes, there's been plenty of back and forth, and he's quit twice, and we fired him <laughs> twice, and, you know.
2: <laughs>
3: I think Christopher made the point that from his vantage point, watching the design progress, that the design benefited from the back and forth. If we had been left to our own devices... Or, if Frank's just original concept, unvarnished, had proceeded, it would not have been as good as it is now. Mm -hmm. The project is unmistakably Frank's, from a design point of view. You can like it or dislike it, but you will not see a replica of it in another city. And at various levels, I think, it carries his imprimatur he will no doubt tell you things that he would have done or could have done or might have done had we not constrained him, and that would also be true, but there are reasons for it sometimes. I think the, thing, the area that is still being worked out that uh, Christopher pointed out is the, the site actually, although it looks massive, is porous in that unlike Cal Plaza, for example, you can access the site from all sides. That was by design, literally. Because there's such a layering of uses on the back side, and there's a bit of a Rubik's cube of fitting these in with the parking and everything. It's hugely complicated. Outwardly, if you look at the model only, and again, you don't have the storefronts in, you don't have the tables and chairs outside the storefront, which will be there, from the Olive Street side, the, the other side, if you will, You know, it looks like it's mostly a massive building, although I think that the details will be very interesting. And we're working on that. But, again, this project had a lot of masters and a lot of objectives, and I feel pretty good. Frank's last words to us, not more than two or three weeks ago, he says, I'm proud of this. He wouldn't have said that six months ago.
1: Um, I'd like to just give the last word to Councilwoman Perry Mm -hmm. and uh, see if she has any final comments to make. Yeah, just a quick comment.
2: I've been to the studio twice to see uh, not only the schematics but the models and... uh, I really uh enjoyed watching frank stormy personality artist short guy curses a lot uh you know <laughs> uh you know stuff at the clients but the last presentation we saw I, it's almost impossible to put it into words it it was something like I've never seen before, and it was uh breathtaking and I said to him, how do you how, where do you get these ideas? And you know, he said I dream them and then I get up and I write them down, I sketch them out. I guess that's that's the way a mind like that operates. And it's been an incredible experience to watch somebody who is almost 80 years old beyond the top of his game. He's in a league that I I've never had the privilege of even seeing. And so you know, for all of his frustration or anger or yelling or whatever, I think we're going to still have something that defies categorization, that will shock people in a good way. We'll be talking about it for a really long time, maybe the rest of our lives. We
1: might look to some of the other projects right here on Bunker Hill and say when they're designed by a single hand, it often doesn't work out that well. What's in, what do you have in mind for phases two, three, and four? Is, are there four phases altogether? Two and three. Um,
3: the second phase is the two surface parking lots owned by the Community Redevelopment Agency now that are between Lower Grand, right under the bridge there, and Hope Street, just south of Disney Hall and on the, the west side of Grand. And then the third phase are the, the surface parking lots mostly owned by the county one of them is private but we've made a, a deal to buy, to acquire that site from the private owner that are between hill and olive and between uh, first and second street and what we've done today which uh, the joint powers authority has seen is we've just done kind of a placeholder sketch plan to show massing of buildings and square footages of different uses on those phases we have not hired an architect at all we've been frankly so overwhelmed with trying to make get phase one done. of course, without that, there isn't at least with us a phase two or three the The only thing I would say conceptually and i 'm not you know, giving away any great secret here is we did feel that first phase would probably be the most complicated because it has to set the tone, both design-wise, public space-wise, and critical mass-wise. It has the most mixed, the greatest mix of uses. I, I, I think phase two, just conceptually, we've hired nobody, but the thought is to bring retail right up to the level of the Grand Avenue Bridge. So you will actually have a continuous streetscape which you don't now have on Grand Avenue with residential towers and other uses behind it. The thought on phase three, phase three there is a question mark and that is the county is debating the Board of Supervisors on whether to build a new hall of administration and if so where. And one of the options is on the parking lot that it owns which is part of phase three. They have until August of next year to basically tell us yes we, we would like to negotiate or to work with you to develop an office building for us on that site or not so that we, we it really depends on whether they go there or don't but we have really not given much thought uh, despite Christopher's prognostications on who we would hot retain for design or planning That's both the coy answer and the accurate one.
1: And we'll probably produce a lot of business cards right after this session.
0: heard Christopher Hawthorne, Bill Whitty, Dana Cuff, and Jan Perry on the Grand Avenue Project. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This Tuesday, October 9th, Michael Gerson, the speechwriter who penned many of George W. Bush's most influential speeches, visits Sokolo to talk about some of the themes of his new book, Heroic Conservatism, which is both a manifesto for the Republican Party and a memoir of his time in the Bush White House. He argues that America needs a new type of conservatism, one that promotes government rooted in moral values and initiates compassionate, conservative social strategies such as international AIDS funding and anti-poverty initiatives. That's Tuesday, October 9th, 7 p.m. at the Center at Cathedral Plaza. Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, questions the Sokolo audience posed for the Grand Avenue panelists. Stay tuned to Sokolo Radio.
3: Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskey. From the studios
0: of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing.
3: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC.
0: Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. On September 25th, a crowd of curious Angelinos came to our Socalo event and posed their own questions of our panelists on the Grand Avenue project. LA Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne, developer Bill Whitty, president of the related companies of California, Dana Cuff, professor of urban planning at UCLA, and LA City Council member Jan Perry. Here are their questions. Uh, Jan Perry and Bill Whitty, both of you mentioned uh, Little Tokyo. And my question is, is um, when you build these large public projects, uh, such as Grand Avenue, how do you protect the kind of wonderful, vibrant public places that we already have? And one of my concerns is that if uh Grand Avenue project is successful, it's going to drive up property values. And what does this mean for the independent businesses that cater to the local community? Thanks.
2: If you are familiar with the way Little Tokyo uh, conducts its community business, it's probably one of the most organized to politically and socially organized communities in downtown. It's one of the last three Japan towns in the country. People fight pretty hard to make sure that the, I guess, psychological boundaries of what people feel or perceive Little Tokyo to be are, are protected and not breached by interests that, don't compliment or enhance the community. And they were not only involved in discussing this project, but Bill referenced Hikari, which has actually been a very nice fit in Little Tokyo and brought a lot of younger people into the area to you know patronize the businesses that had kind of gone flat uh, in the 80s, 90s at night again. So I guess my answer would be that the community is a fully engaged, highly participatory community. Whenever I even think I'm going to do anything that might go into Little Tokyo. I always go to Little Tokyo Tokyo Community Council where you have almost 80 different representatives of the organizations that serve or or are in Little Tokyo. And so not much goes into Little Tokyo that people don't review and approve.
1: There's a larger question behind that, though, I think, which is that these projects generate a a new dynamic in the
2: city at large, Well, yeah. You know, and, and, and it's, not and it's bad, good depending. and bad. It's good it's and it's a little scary because you have to look at where you are, look at these neighborhoods that are growing up right under our feet, that other than maybe doing some adjustments on saying, you know, adaptive reuse, go into these empty buildings and you can build housing or something like that, a lot of our success is built on we give you a few things to change and then get out of the way and then let's see where it goes. So, you know, we have to remember that there, there are communities and that we have to kind of, stand back on certain activities like an L.A. Live would not work in the middle of, you know, the historic core. It would never work. Things like that. You have to be understanding and very cognizant of, you know, what, the, what is the heart and the soul of the neighborhood where you're, where you're at? The,
3: the two biggest blocks of, as you say, the kind of smaller independently owned businesses in Little Tokyo, not the only, are the uh, street level activity on First Street and then Japanese Village Plaza. And one way, and it's because of what Jan said, I think to some degree the cultural coherence has been pretty well, I think, maintained there, is because while clearly more development will increase property values, if the redevelopment potential of existing areas like that is limited in that you know, the city, or in this case the CRA, is not going to approve demolishing historic buildings on First Street or allowing you to tear down Japanese Village Plaza, which, as you probably know, just sold to a new owner. That is probably the most significant way to maintain that identity. If values go up, but they can't be realized by more density, then not that much change can occur. So I think in that neighborhood... That's probably the biggest mm-hmm. factor that I think will 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 keep a balance of new and old.
1: And I think that's a, the right direction, too, that somehow as we watch Starbucks take over everywhere, <laughs> what we have to try to protect as we're increasing the vitality and vibrancy of downtown is that we don't destroy those places that are already vibrant and special. And that's not an easy process. It requires the city in the county to take a rule.
0: I'm wondering about the park and basically the philosophy behind it. When Pershing Square was redesigned 10 years, 15 years ago, you ended up with a design that was yeah. essentially defensive <laughs> and it was designed in a way to make sure that there were no homeless people there who are going to sleep on any bench because they were all uncomfortable and it was all cement and it's an interesting structure but it's not friendly how defensive is this park going to be and is it going to be something that is welcoming to all
3: well the one thing I can say the the public will get a view of the preliminary schematic design like I said either later this year or right after the first of the year just working on it now. But a lot of the focus of the design effort is precisely to open the park up because the biggest problem with those spaces, and they are public spaces now there, is that they are blocked off either by ramps or by topography and height. Uh, they certainly don't connect. Many people don't even know that they're there. So a lot of the effort in the design, especially in the baseline design, is to do precisely that, to open it up, because otherwise we believe it really won't be used. So I'm not familiar with the process for Pershing Square, but I think there's a very different dynamic here. And again, as Jan said, there's been a lot of input from the public, including advocates for the homeless, frankly.
5: Hi, this is Celia Brookman with the William C. Velasquez Institute. Um, I guess my question is also about the park, and my question is if you have thought about um, being able to include or consider in this park uh, uh, the needs for some uh, active recreation in a, in a sense. I know that it will not be probably, but the fact that nowadays when we invest a lot of money of public funds in public spaces, we definitely need to try to make an effort and consider that we have tremendous health problems with obesity, diabetes, and we have really a great need in these areas for those spaces. And um, how, again, how inviting are these, this parking, how green and accessible for use this park is going to be? Because you mentioned Barcelona. I happen to have family there and go there a lot, and it's true. A lot of people are around, but these places are also plazas available for use, and walk, and seating, and all that. And we call plazas to certain areas here that they don't look nothing like a plaza. It's just the courtyard of a building. <laughs> so uh, so I, I'm sorry. I wish I could have seen more pictures about the park. But we call it the park, the park. And I'm just wondering, are we talking about a, a so-called plaza? Are we talking a real park that will have actually alleviate the community and the, ne- the needs of, of, of particularly youth?
3: Well, first off, there are kind of four distinct blocks comprising the, the county mall, which is what it's called now. And the thought is that they would each have a slightly separate identity, although they'll blend together, so that different things can be going on at the same time for different groups. For example, the parking lot, the, the eastern edge of what will be the park is now that surface parking lot right opposite City Hall. The idea is to have that be a major green space where you could have farmers' markets, civic and public events, or just you know people hanging out. then there could be a garden space, uh, the area the closest to Grant Avenue, which is in between the two county buildings, which has the great historic fountain there, which is an, a, a great resource but not used by other than really county or court employees now, you know that will have its own kind of Personality. So the idea is not to have just one space, but rather different spaces that can have intimate spaces within them or be used for larger events. I'm not sure if that answered your question.
4: My name is Michael Severo. My experience with uh, lively cities has been with the streets and not with parks. And I'm interested in finding out how the buildings are going to be relating to the street. Are they going to have banks, elevator lobbies, and entrances to subterranean garages as what you now see on Bunker Hill? Or will there be a much more uh, lively, inviting uh, type of interaction between the streets and the building?
3: The idea, at least, is to engage and activate the street on every block. So, for example, at the corner of 2nd and Grand, going down 2nd Street, which will now be opened up, it's closed off now. You, it doesn't go through from Olive to Grand. That will now become a through street. A public works project is, is, will start, I think, in the near term on that. So the lobby entrance to the Mandarin Oriental and the lobby entrance next to it for the condominiums above it will be on 2nd Street. The rest of the block going down, especially going across Grand, will be retail stores or openings into the plaza. Going down first, there will be an opening into the plaza, then to the corner of First and Olive, there will be grocery, restaurant, tower with rental and condominiums, and the lobby entrance to the rental and condominiums will be on the street with some stairs on uh, First Street. It's a little more challenging here because of the 35-foot drop in height from Grand to Olive. And then Olive, where it really takes some imagination, given what it looks like today, will become a very active retail street. And ultimately, if phase three happens on both sides.
1: Please join me again in thanking our panelists. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Christopher Hawthorne, Bill Whitty, Dana Cuff, and Jan Perry. This is Socalo Radio, the on air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our many free events around town. For more info, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z O C A L O L A.org. The executive producer for Socollo Radio is Peter Stenzhol. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.